0: A copy of God's Word. Why don't you find the book of Exodus? The book of Exodus. We are in week three of a series that we've been calling Shadows. And what we've been looking at is how God has written this comprehensive book. We call it the meta narrative of Scripture. And how the, the Scripture is so amazing and how all the stories begin to weave together. And just the nature of the Bible, if you're not a student of God's Word, it's a compilation of 66 books written by several different authors that span over centuries. And it all comes together to make this one continuous story in which Jesus Christ is like the main character. He's the MVP of Christianity. And so we're looking back in the Old Testament, which is the first half of your Bible, and we're seeing how Christ is woven into these Old Testament stories, that we've been saying this, that the new is in the old concealed. And so let me just break that down real quick. We looked at the book of Genesis and the creation story, and we said that in, even in the creation story and the fall of mankind, there's this glimmer of the gospel that makes its way in Genesis three fifteen called the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel. And then we looked at last week, this incredibly dark, but also hopeful story where God floods the earth. He was sorry he made mankind. But then we also see the new and the old concealed, that Jesus is our greater ark, that he's made a way for us in the midst of God's wrath, that we can surf on top of the judgment waters if we submit ourselves to the ark that God has made. And the wooden nails coming together thousands of years later after this ark on Jesus' Christ, on Jesus Christ back in the cross. And then we also see in the New Testament how the old is in the New Testament revealed. And so oftentimes you'll read these New Testament authors and you'll see guys like Paul say, Hey, you've heard of the Ark? You've heard of Jonah. Well, Jesus is the greater Jonah, or he's the better Ark, or the author of Hebrews. Hey, you've heard of Melchizedek, which I've don't think if you're not from church, you' probably never heard of that. Anyway. David, that guy would say, "Hey, Jesus is the greater Melchizedek." And so we see that in the new, the old is revealed. And so it's this amazing book that once you get Jesus Christ in the right place, things begin to have clarity, and we begin to see the story of God unfolding. That Paul would write to the church in Colossians, he would say that there are, these, there are people, there are, there are processes, there are objects in the Old Testament, and he would say it like this, that they are just the substance of things, excuse me, the shadow of things to come, but their substance is of Christ, that Christ is the one by which we interpret these things and figure out what they mean to us as an individual and as a church today. Well, before we dive in, before we get into Exodus, I want to start with a story. I, I, Chelsea and I, I think we'd been married like three years, and so we decided to go um, to, to Huntsville, in Huntsville, Texas. And in Huntsville, we went there because, and I still remember like it was yesterday, we went there because my dad was, he was getting out of prison. And, and he was, he was um, incarcerated for, for the third time, and this time he wound up in a state penitentiary. And so I I just remember the day like it was yesterday, my wife and I, and then my two brothers, we loaded up in the car, and my wife's thinking, who have I married? Like, we're going to the pen now? Like, what's going on, right? And so we hop in the car, and we head down to the state penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas, and we go to this infamous prison that's simply known as The Wall. And at the wall, like, we, we just showed up at a time. They said, hey, you need to be here around this time. They didn't give us, like, hey, your family will get out at this time. And so we show up, and we're kind of, like, in this just like a, a, a bus station-type building, and we're across the street from the wall, and, and we're just waiting. We're waiting with these other family members that are waiting for their beloved to get out of prison. And then you start seeing kind of this awkward um, just fallout of men that are getting released from prison. It was this kind of weird, awkward uh, unity, like unifying moment where you had like, you had like the the African American like Blood Crip like gang members. You had the Hispanic like banditos, like teardrops running down their cheeks. You had the white Aryan race tattoos all over their blank head. You know, spider webs and swastikas, and they're all getting out like high fiving each other. I'm like, this is weird, man. Y'all are all getting along, but they're like, we're free, right? And they're all liberated. And my dad, when he saw us, man, he began to weep because he thought that he was going to get released from prison to no one because he thought that his his sons had turned their back on him, but we decided, hey, we're going to give dad one more chance. And, and so we go there, and he began to weep because he was overwhelmed, and he hugs us, and he smells the high heaven. I'm like, Dad, they ain't got showers in prison, and he said, don't go there anyway. And so he hugged us, and we were so excited, and, and he, he was excited. We're like, Dad, Dad, you're out of prison. You're out of prison. What do you want to do? And he's like, let's go to the gas station. <laughs> we're like, the gas station? He's like, I need some cigarettes. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you just got out of prison. Let's go get you some cigarettes. And then we said, Dad, we'll take you anywhere you want to eat. Where do you want to go to eat? He said, I want a hamburger from Whataburger. And if you don't know what that is, bless you, they put crack in their ketchup. And um, it is one of the best fast food restaurants in the South, all right? And so that day, like, it, it, was, it was crazy to me because my dad had just gotten out of prison, and the first thing he wanted is cigarettes. And it, and it wasn't too long after that that he began to get back into alcohol. And, and, and he, what happened was he was just liberated from his prison, but then he started to drift back to those things that were familiar. You know, those things that he just kind of always has done. And he drifted back to these things, and I'm like, Dad, what are you doing? Like, like, and it wasn't long before it, one beer turned into two and turned into a bottle of Everclear, and then he starts drinking again and abusing alcohol, and this was the whole reason why he was in prison in the first place. And i tell you that story tonight because I think that that is relative to a lot of our situations. Like, I don't think that you're in a literal state penitentiary called The Wall. and cra- I don't think you're in that, but a lot of you are in a metaphorical prison tonight. And we have this tendency to break free from things that maybe have held us in captivity in our history, but then we have this tendency to break free from them and then kind of drift back into them, right? Because it's familiar, and she'll always be there, or it will always be there for me. And so maybe you come here, like, you started 2018 strong, right? Like, you, was, you, you had kale. Um, you were like putting essential oils to help you lose weight, because there, there's an oil for that, right? And so you were diffusing, like you was healthy, and then ice cream went on sale, and it wasn't Halo Top, right? And you were like, what? Mm, I got a decision to make, and might as well get some Chateau chocolate milk and make a little milkshake, and then put my muffin top back together. You know what I'm saying? And so you're just like you're just like, right, I'm going to drift back into this eating issue, right? Or maybe some of you, more seriously, um, like you remember... Like the bondage that you had when it came to to like just getting so anxious about your social life. Like you remember, like it was like in college, and you were like just so concerned with what people thought about you, or maybe it was middle school, or maybe it was high school. I don't know, you had that season, and, and so like, but you were man, you broke free from that anxiety. Like, I don't care what they think about me anymore. But then you were on the gram the other day and you were like, Man, she's in San Diego. I want to go to San Diego. My life is is a sewer. Her life's a San Diego. I wish I could unlock a photo. Can I not ta- I wish I could just... And, and you got on Instagram, or you got on your social media, you, got on, you were on Snapchat, and you begin to see, and it, and it started provoking all this, this social anxiety, and you begin to drift back into the game of comparison. Or maybe God liberated you, or maybe you got free from pornography, and you were like, look, I don't want to objectify women. I don't want to submit my life to those things. And, and, and you got free from that. But then, you know, you, you just kind of were like, you know, your boy was like, hey, man, you seen the new Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition? And you are like, no, let me check that out. Because I think they got an article about— um, <clears throat> no they ain't got an article but they got a bikini <laughs> you're like well it's just a bikini like they're you know women are they're clothed in here all right patrick mahomes okay that's nice and you found yourself drifting back into objectifying women that we have this tendency that if we're not careful, man, we'll, we'll, we'll break free from things, but then we'll drift back into those things. So maybe you had this frantic schedule in your 20s, and now you're in your 30s, and you're like, I got life under control, but then you just got a promotion at work, and now you're working 80 hours a week trying to get things back together. You don't have time for the Lord anymore, and you you thought that you had just your, your life together, and, and but you have this tendency to drift back to these things of familiarity, and oftentimes it starts small, but then it gains momentum, and you're back into your prison and tonight can I tell you that God has a better way for you that you may be on the brink of your breakthrough just by showing up tonight and don't give up that God is wanting to help us depart from our destructive behaviors in what's called an exodus let me give you a working definition of an exodus not a common word like you weren't hanging out this week and like what would you do well we went out to 54th and then we had an exodus and we went home Okay, that's weird. All right. Anyway, so let me give you a working definition real quick. Biblically, an exodus is a departure of God's people from a prison to a promise. It's a departure of God's people from a prison to a promise. Let me preach to you real quick. God wants you to depart from your prison to walk into his promise. That God has a better day ahead of you. That you may have made a mess of your life, but your tomorrow can be a new day. That God is not the God so much so of happily ever afters before he's the God of new beginnings. That God wants to do a new work in your life. He wants to create a spring in your life. He wants you to wear a turquoise shirt spiritually in your life. He wants to see some flowers come up out of the winter grounds of of your life, that God wants to you to depart from your prison and enter in his promise. So I've titled this message, The New Exodus, that Exodus isn't a book that's just in the annals of our faith history, that Exodus is a reality that you and I can walk in tonight, literally, if we choose to believe in the one who's come to save us, set us free from this prison called sin, and then keep us free so that we don't get back into those familiar grooves of our life, but we could stay free and continue to reject Satan's lie of in his His desire to come after us. God has a new exodus for you tonight, if you'll choose it. And we see in this story of exodus, man, it oozes Christ. It oozes the gospel, that the exodus is one of these like these foundational stories and events that took place in the history of Christianity and of our faith, that the exodus, it finds its way throughout the prophets of the Old Testament that the Exodus finds its way in the language of the New Testament authors. That the Exodus is one of these stories that when you begin to peel back the layers and begin to see what's going on in the Exodus, you begin to see like, we are a part of this new Exodus. And it's this incredible story where God's people, they were locked up in slavery and they were making bricks underneath the tyranny of Pharaoh so that he could perpetuate his legacy through the pyramids. That Pharaoh, he had so much oppression on these people that he decided that there were too many of the Israelites, too many of the Hebrews. And so he gave Shipra and Pua the, uh, he he said, you need to go kill all the Egyptian, I mean all the Israelite babies. And Shipra and Pua, these two little heroines that we find on the pages of Exodus, they were midwives and they were delivering these Hebrew babies. And they said, them Hebrews are strong, man, they can deliver a baby and then go right back to work. And they said, we can't kill them all. So Pharaoh, he said, I'm such a baby killer. I want to institute such an abortion upon the Hebrew people that you need to take their babies, throw them in the Nile River so that the crocodiles have something for dinner. But there was a man named Moses, and his mom was a believer in God, and he and she took Moses, put Moses in a little baby boat. We could call it an ark, if you will. He was completely helpless, completely surrendered to this little basket, and she pushed him off into that river. Moses was snatched up by Pharaoh's sister, and Pharaoh's sister, Pharaoh's mom, maybe I don't know. Anyway, so Pharaoh's people, the king's people, Moses is snatched up. Then he is put into the palace of Pharaoh. He begins to grow up in kind of high class. He does this deal, and he becomes like the stepbrother of the soon-to-be king. Then he kills a man. He's excommunicated into the wilderness. He thinks his life is over. And then he's walking around, you know, he's a shepherd, he's getting these sheep out in the desert, and then he hears this, Moses, Moses, and he's like, what's up? And it's a burning bush, and he's like, dang, this is crazy, I should check it out. And then the bush starts talking to Moses and telling him, like, Moses, I got a job for you. He's like, bro, I'm old, and I like these sheep. He's like, no, that ain't why you was created remember I saved you in a baby boat for a purpose he said go to Pharaoh yeah that's your brother kind of but stepbrother but y'all ain't really talked in a while but go to him and tell him that you got to let my people go so Moses walked like an Egyptian across the desert and he said hey Pharaoh you got to let my people go and Pharaoh said no and he said I'm telling you Pharaoh watch my stick turn into a snake and he did that and he's like I got tricks too and he's like no I got I got a bigger God he's like no I am God Moses like okay Plague one, plague two, plague three, plague four, 10 plagues because God is flexing his authority over Pharaoh because Pharaoh thought he was a god. And eventually Moses would be called by God to effectively lead a righteous rebellion in which God demonstrated his power clearly against the greatest force of tyranny and the greatest force in the world at that time. And Pharaoh finally set God's people free. And so we're going to cut to the chase tonight. Exodus chapter 14. If you're taking notes tonight, write this simple phrase down, but a little confusing. I'll explain. Seductive slavery. Seductive slavery. Exodus 14, it starts here in verse 10. It says, and when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. Hold up, Pharaoh just let them go. Why are they marching after them? We'll find out. So they were very afraid. They're like, uh-oh, we're we about to die. And the children of Israel, they cried out to the Lord. And then when that got done, they, they said to Moses, hey, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? They're complaining to Moses. They said, why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Their sisters said, we want to go back to our prison, back to our baby killer king. We want to go back to making bricks for... Pyramids. We want to go back to all that. And it says in verse 12 Isn't, Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt? We already told you this, but they're lying. They didn't tell him that. They said, We want to go. They said, Remember, we said, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. Listen, God's people are on the brink of their breakthrough, but they have the tendency to want to go back to the bricks of their bondage, that they are fantasizing about the kindness of a baby killer Pharaoh. And they're in this weird paradox, and it's causing them to have fear about their future freedom. And they're in this weird paradox because they are like, they can see their promise on the other side of the Red Sea, but they're like, you know what? Slavery wasn't that bad and they're being seduced by their slavery. That they're on the bank of their breakthrough. One side represents the prison. One side represents slaves and the bricks of their bondage. On the other side, it represents new life, new beginnings, freedom. That the, that the what was, was was better in their mind than the what could be. And some of you are right in the same place tonight. Man, what, what was seems better than what God could do in your life. And some of you are standing on the bank of decision tonight and you come here to give God one more chance and I'm telling you, hang in and let's see what breakthrough can happen when you trust God completely. That they're being seduced by their slavery. They're struggling with what psychologists call Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome, let me give you a definition, It's, it's where the hostage in a very unusual way bonds with their tormentor. It's a psychological condition where you you as a hostage, you've been taken prisoner, you've been abused, you've been been jacked up. You begin to say, you know what, my tormentors, he's not that bad of a guy. And you begin to get seduced by your slavery. One of the grossest expressions of this that I found in modern history happened in 1991. There was an 11-year-old girl that was snatched out of her front yard. And she was in bondage. She was made to be a slave for the next 18 years. She was locked away in a dark room. She was abused by this man in every way imaginable. And his wife never said a word. She was sparingly fed. She delivered two children in this room. And then, about 10 years ago, in 2009, she was liberated. 18 years, the best years of her life, gone. She wrote in a book later, she said this, and I quote, He used his powers of persuasion to gain my trust. He became my entire world. I depended on him for food, water, my toilet. He was my only source of amusement. I craved human contact so much by then that I actually looked forward to him coming to see me. She wrote later that he would would pull the handcuffs off of me, and I was grateful for this. She says here again that I looked forward to him coming and, and seeing me, and it felt like he was bestowing a gift to me, his presence. So this little girl robbed out of her front yard, made a slave for 18 years, having two children, but somehow she could write, I appreciated his presence. And some of y'all are thinking like, this is insane! This is crazy! How, How could she say this about this man who did horrendous, nightmarish things to her? God's saying the same thing about your situation too. That God is like, oh, why would you choose this over me? Why do you have this propensity to go back to your prison? Why would you be so easily pleased with these things that are robbing your life? He's saying, this is crazy, this is insane. I'm a good father, I have life and life abundantly for you, but you keep running after the slums of sin. And somehow you're seduced by your slavery. And so we, we've come here tonight, and we, we have this tendency, right, to, to look back on our life and, and to kind of, like, dismiss the, the destruction, you know? So, like, like maybe you come here, and, and maybe you have a past when it comes to your dating life, you know, and, and maybe you're here, and you're single tonight, and, and, and for you, that, like, that's a struggle. Like, you're just, you're, you're ready to kind of settle down, and Josiah says things like, ring by spring, and you're like, yeah, that'd be nice, you know, and you just kind of, like, laugh it off, but really, you're like... You know, and so you maybe you come here and so you begin to think, like you look back and you go like, oh man, my, my dating life, like that was such a good time, like high school, yes, prom season, I remember, and you dismiss the destruction in the way that he abused you, and you think, oh, well, at least I wasn't lonely or you have this tendency, like, look back on that, that season of life where you really, you know, like, you were living it up, you were partying it up, you were at the club with a bottle full of above because it was, like, your birthday, and you had a—sorry, that was an old reference. Like, that's an old song. That's a song back in the day, like like 15 years ago. Anyway. 50 cent. All right. Anyway, so um, you were back, you, were, you, was, you was partying, right? And so you, I mean, you look back and you're like, oh man, like those were the, like I used to be the life of the party, you know? And you have this tendency to dismiss the destructive behaviors that took place and, and, and you have this tendency to dismiss the pain of your pursuit of pleasure. And you think, well, at least I was happy back then. We come in here tonight and we have this tendency to look at the things that once had us in bondage and somehow think, oh, it wasn't that bad. And so we begin to get back into those gateways that took us to deeper destruction. And listen, every time you sin just a little bit, it makes it that much easier to sin again. Like my dad, he he got out, he was sober. He hadn't had a drink of liquor in a year. And then he said, I'm going to have a beer. And the beer turned into six. And then six turned into Everclear. And then Everclear turned into tequila. And you and I do the same thing so often that we have this tendency to run back to the things of familiarity, that we have this propensity to go back to our prison. I wonder tonight, what's your favorite sin? What's your favorite sin? What's that sin that's in your life that you're like, I mean, it ain't that bad, you know? That The sin, listen, the sin that you're most defensive about is the sin that's the most destructive in your life. And so when someone kind of meddles in your business because they love you, and you say, Don't tell me how to live my life, act like you ain't perfect. Be careful. Because that sin will soon become your prison. And I want to tell you tonight that you have the power in Jesus' name. I want to call you tonight, Paradigm, to begin to break the bonds with your bondage, to, be, to begin to cut the ties with your tyrant. Because there is a Pharaoh in all of our lives, mine included. There's a Pharaoh that calls my name every day. It's the Pharaoh of pornography. It's the Pharaoh of hollow fame. It's the Pharaoh of people-pleasing. It's the Pharaoh of pride. Who's your Pharaoh? What, name does, or what number does he call in your life? What's your favorite Sin and know this that this story tells us clearly Pharaoh let the people go. He said, You're no longer mine. But then he began to hunt them down. And they begin to believe because he was hunting them down, like, oh, he likes me again. I like slavery. Pharaoh, he ain't that bad. He did kill my baby, but he ain't that bad. And we get seduced back into slavery. And I'm telling you guys that God didn't die on a cross to make you miserable. So many times we come to Christianity, we think, well, if I, if I trust Christ, I, well, then I can't do I won't have any fun or I won't have any fulfillment. But I'm telling you, man, Christ came to set you free. He came to bring you liberty. He came to bring you life and life abundantly, that Christ has come to give you all that he has, that we get to be co-heirs in Christ. But there's this problem that we have this wicked heart. Proverbs 14 says there's a way that seems right in a man's heart, but in the end it leads to death. And so many of you have come in here tonight and me and I've been on slippery slopes in my past where I've made a decision to die by a thousand cuts. Or rather, I made a decision to die by a thousand compromises. No one drives off of a cliff in a moment. They've been headed that way for a long time. And so I wonder tonight if you struggle with something I've struggled with before, the one more time syndrome. Like, you know, one more time. Like, I'm just going to masturbate one more time, and then I'm done. And you, can, and you are willingly dismissing the fact that you're training yourself to have good sex with yourself and not with someone else. Or, the, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to get lit one more time. One, 4 last time, for real. And you think, oh, this is my last joint, this is my last pill, it's is my last, la-. one more time. And you think, okay, when I get married, I'm going to clean it all up. No. She, she or he is just going to make you want to take more. That's your comfort. You think, oh, well, one more time. I, you know, one more time I'm just going to stay late at work. One more time. Because they need me, and this is my identity. And one more time turns into a life of being a workaholic and finding your identity and your ability to perform. Because, listen, you know this, what you feed grows and what you decide to give your heart to, that's what's going to grab a hold of you. Galatians 5.16 says to walk in the spirit and don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. That the exodus in this story, what's happening is that the people are standing on the brink of their breakthrough and they're choosing to feed their fear. And so they are about to go back into bondage willingly. They're being seduced by their slavery. But God is saying, hey, I've come to set you free. I've come to bring you liberty. And Christ is offering, Offering you the same invitation tonight, he's offering me the same invitation tonight. That Jesus says that he who the sun sets free is free indeed. Paul would write that it's for Christ. I mean, it's for freedom that you've been set free. Paul would call it that you've been justified to be sanctified on your way to be glorified. What the Exodus is showing us that let me break that big word down for you. That Christians are freed. They're being set free, and they will. They are headed to freedom. That's the ideal. That's the identity that's the pathway in Christianity but don't be seduced by your slavery point number two if you're taking notes tonight write this down stand still and go forward stand still and go forward There's so many times there are paradoxes that we find in Christianity and so let me jump into this text <clears throat> Exodus 14 starting in 13 it says and Moses said to the people do not be afraid stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. Hallelujah. The Lord will fight for you, thank you, Jesus. And he shall hold your peace. Then he's saying, hey, hey, don't be afraid, be still. Don't be afraid, be still. Because in order for God to heal you, he may have to steal you. Um, earlier this year, my Elizabeth, my second born who we baptized this weekend, hallelujah. And so she, um, she got baptized, but earlier this year she was in the hospital. We were at Children's Mercy because she had this weird infection in her foot. And so what happened was we went to the hospital. She's been aching and pain, all this stuff. They said, well, we need to do an MRI. Well, she's four years old. They said, typically with four years old, four-year-olds, we put them under, right? And my wife's like, we don't want you know we don't want any novocaine we don't want any medicine like that and so she said we think that my daughter in order to get the help she needs we think that she can be still and so we said elizabeth for an hour you need to be still she's four okay and she's my child all right and so like be still for an hour if you want the help you need if you want your foot to get better there's something invisible that's grabbed a hold of your foot. If you want that to get better, you got to be still, baby. And God's telling you the same thing tonight. That some of you have an infection in your foot. The Bible calls it a toehold. That Satan's grabbed a hold of you. And in order for you to get liberated and to get the salvation of God, you got to be still. But isn't that hard? <laughs> like we are, we are so addicted to activity, right? Like we are the most busy, I don't even know if that's right English, we are the busiest, we are the most active generation ever to walk the face of the planet. Like it is incredibly painful for some, some of y'all just got anxious me telling you to be still. You're like, I can't be, I got don't hold me down, just, I feel, right? And you just, I mean that ideal, you gotta be still. The reason why you're not seeing God move in your life is maybe because you're too active. And some of you aren't hearing from the word of God and the word of God comes or the voice of God comes through the word of God, oh, the voice of God comes through the word of God because you're not being still our social media team threw out an incredible post this morning. You should check it out where they're saying, hey, you've got to be still to hear the voice of God. You've got to get in the word of God. You should check it out for a little inspiration so that you can begin to hear what God has to say to you because he's written a word to you. He's written a love story a love story for you, and, and Moses is telling the people, hey, be still and watch the salvation of God rush in. In the story, the salvation of God, it was a literal salvation Like God is about to do something that is going to blow their mind, something they could have never done in a thousand lifetimes. And the salvation that that is about to rush in is a literal salvation, but this is just a shadow of a greater salvation to come. That, that, That Moses in the Exodus is just the setup of Jesus to come in the Gospels for a deeper salvation. That Israel was needed, excuse me, Israel needed a salvation from the Egyptians. But God is saying, hey, we need salvation from our sin and our bondage. And Moses, with confidence, he says that he will accomplish this for you, that he will fight the battle for you, that Pharaoh and his armies, you will never hear from them again, that watch and see the great work of God on your behalf. He's saying, be still, because listen, you can't add anything to salvation. When we try to add something to salvation, we subtract from that salvation, That the equation that lays out in the scriptures that Moses is trying to show us through the story of Exodus, that Jesus would show us in its totality and in its clarity is that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That the way to salvation is through our stillness. And so he says, be still, but then he says, go forward. In verse 15, he says, and the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying? Why are you crying to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. There's so many times we think stillness is just being like in a locked place, but God's waiting on the Lord is not a passive thing. Being still is not lazy. That God wants us to put our faith in motion. He wants us to board the plane, if you will. He wants us to move forward because that's what, is, that's what it is to put your faith in something. You activate it. You get to move forward. Like, I don't know. Let me break this down real quick. How many of y'all like to fly? Anybody love to fly? Yeah, I, like I love to fly. Like flying is a mystery to me, right? You're like, you're on the ground and then you're up like 30,000 feet. It's amazing. And, and when you fly, you think about like you trying to fly, you know, like, you know, you just start flap, right? I mean, you're trying to get it and it, it just ain't going to happen, right? And now when you're flying, like it's, it's amazing because you can soar to new heights. I mean, it's a miracle, if you will. Um, when I was, I was in Alaska in January and I had the chance to go on a, a small little plane and we were in Kenai, Alaska, and there's this amazing uh, like conglomeration of, of landmarks in Kenai. And so you have like the ocean. You have uh, this incredible Kenai River that red salmon swim up, and they're really good to eat. We had some this weekend. And then you have the mountains, and you have glaciers. And you can begin to get into the mountains in a plane and see things that you could have never seen on your own. But in order for me to soar to those heights and experience the miracle of flight— I had to board the plane. And some of you are not seeing God move. You're not soaring to the heights that God has for you and seeing the mysteries that God wants you to marvel at because you're not going forward. You're not boarding the plane. You're not positioning yourself in the right places. But listen, you're here tonight. And so I want to shout out everybody that came tonight because you're saying, look, I don't want to just sit in mediocrity in my Christianity at home and catch the podcast. If you're on the podcast, we love you, but we want you here. And I I want to be in the room. I want to feel the presence of God. I want to make the decision on my Tuesday night to leave work early, go into work late, whatever I got to do to get with the people of God. And we're so glad that you're here because you are going forward with your faith. And we want to see a people of God who don't just idly wait for God, but they wait for God to do the miraculous, to do the things that only God can do, but they set their faith in motion by going forward, and that's what we see in the text, that the people have to go forward, and once they go forward, God makes the waters go up. And it's this amazing spiritual truth. Number three, if you're taking notes, it's this amazing story that a lot of you have heard where God, he splits the sea. And so he's about to split the sea wide open. He's about to allow the people of God to walk through on dry ground. So we pick up our story in verse 16. And so God tells Moses, he said, hey, hey, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea into dry land. This is amazing. Think about it. And the waters were divided. That's critical. So the children of Israel, they went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on their right and on their left. And the Egyptians, they pursued and went after them in the midst of the sea, that all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen, and so we see like the like Moses, pff, waters. I've been to the Red Sea before. We took a funny picture where I was holding up a stick like this. It, it didn't work anyway. And so we tried it, but it didn't work. But for Moses, it worked. And so like like he's boom, water split. They walk in through dry. It's this amazing story where God is unfolding this miraculous power, and, and he's coming back to the waters. See, the waters in ancient time and in, and in biblical times, the waters were this, this euphemism for like a curse. Like you think about it when you go and see the ocean or even go to a deep lake, you're like, man, it's deep and dark And then, like the water, especially the ocean, like, or a big sea like this, like, there's these big animals that live in the depth of the ocean, like, it's mysterious. And and so many people in this time and a day, they would say, Man, that's a curse. Like, there's just something dark and unpredictable. And so, that God has the authority over the waters. What they would have heard is that God has the authority over the curse. That God, what it says in Genesis 1 2 is that His Spirit hovered over the waters, and then He created out of that chaos. And so we see like last week in the flood that this was a proper judgment, that God was removing his sustaining hand on humanity, and chaos ensued. And the waters came and was a pouring out of a curse upon mankind. But God delivered Noah through a boat or through an ark. And we see here that God is once again coming back to water, and he is dividing these waters, and he's separating them. And, and these waters are about to fall as an expression of disintegration and decreation. But God is parting them. And this is in a very appropriate euphemism, very appropriate language. Because we know this, when people betray God, disintegration and decreation happens. Like some of you are in a community group. And, um, and so like what happens in a community group is that you do, you're you committing to do life with each other. And so some of you are in a community group and and maybe like one uh, one person in a community group, like they, they sinned against another person. Or, or like they heard like maybe they were down in Westport and they were like, you know, Such and such was down in Westport. And did you hear about that? And and they were like talking to somebody that wasn't really in Westport at the time. They're like, no, but it doesn't surprise me. And they began to gossip, but they didn't know that person was in Westport because they were on a weekend called Unashamed and they were trying to pray for some people in Westport. But they didn't ask any of those questions. They just started to gossip. They were like, well, I don't want nothing to do with Westport. I don't want nothing to do with no people in Westport. And so they just began to just kind of like turn to themselves. And this person's like, fine, I don't care. I don't care about you or your mama or your, your dog. I don't even like your dog. Even though I asked about your dog in accountability time. Anyway, that's, that person started doing that, and there was this kind of this, this schism, if you will, and there was this decreation that took place in the context of your community. That when we turn on each other, and we begin to gossip and backbite one another. Decreation, disintegration insinuates. That decreation is, is, could be said like this, that the wages of sin is decreation. The wages of sin is disintegration, it's death. But God is parting the curse so that his people can walk through on dry ground. But we see what happens in verse 26. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea once again, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. That God, he creased the curse so that his people could walk through it. And then he caused the curse to fall back down upon his enemies. There were 10 plagues that happened in Egypt. And some would say this is the, uh, uh, the 11th plague. It's the final demonstration of God's wrath on the Egyptians. And Israel finds himself walking through. That God split the sea so his people could walk right through it like we're saying. And that their fears are now drowned in his perfect love. And God does the miraculous. They cross from death to life, from condemnation to freedom, from bondage to independence. And this is a shadow of a greater salvation that came through Christ. Guys, I, I, don't, I don't know that... that, that If you know this reality in your life, and some of you have come in here and you're like, man, I don't know if I can believe in that. I I don't know if I have enough faith. Like that's just splitting the waters and walking through and trusting God with my life. I don't know if I have enough faith for that. But let me tell you, it's not the measure of your faith that matters in totality. It is the object of your faith. And so maybe all you have is a little faith. Well, put your little faith in motion and trust Christ. Like, could you imagine that day? You would have had people that were walking through, guys. You would have people walking through, and they would have seen the water on their left and on their right. And some would have been singing like, man, he, we, he splits the sea so we can walk right through it, right? And they would have been, you know, singing. Then you had other people not singing. They were skeptical, like, I don't know, man. I still don't know. Like Moses said, he loved us, but I don't know. And you had other people, like, like they, were, they were dancing, right? You had the, the charismatics dancing through the thing, right? They were dancing. And then you had other people that were doubting. And they were fearful. You had people walking through, and, and some were praised, and other people were like, how did he do that? I don't—they were pondering. And you had this conglomeration of faith responses in this moment, but God delivered those that had trusted in the pathway— and so you may not have a bunch of faith. God would say, come to me with your faith, even though it be like a mustard seed. And give me what you got. If all you got is $10, don't think I'm asking for 30 Bring me what you got. And I'll take what you got, and I'll multiply it. And I'll show myself faithful, because I'm a God who cannot lie. And you can trust me. And the gospel is not rooted in the substance of your faith, but in the object of your faith. It's Christ that saves you, not your amount of faith so much so. And this is what makes Christianity unlike any other faith system, any other belief. You know, all the other beliefs, they have the ladder to life approach. You know, like you got to climb, you got to do, you got to, you've got to, you see the waters of your bondage and your prison. you got to build a bridge out over the Red Seas in your life. That's what they say. Christianity says, hey, be still and just trust the path that God, God's about to blow your mind. And he parts the waters. He divides our damnation. He creases our curse so that we can walk through that crease, so that we can trust that path, and so that we can exalt him and say, God, aren't you a good God? You love me so much so that you accomplish this for me. And the conclusion of Exodus 14 is found in verse 31, and it says, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord, and I love this, and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So when you look at this story, you've got to ask this question, like what makes the Egyptians different than the Israelites? Or what makes the Israelites different than the Egyptians? And some people say, well, the Egyptians, they're bad, and the Israelites are good. But that's not true. You study the Word of God. Just read the, the rest of Exodus, and you find out that's not true. What separates the Egyptians from the Israelites is that the Israelites had a mediator named Moses. In Moses, he stands as this pivotal figure in the Scriptures. <clears throat> that Moses, he he identifies with his people, like he, he's you know he's he's even blamed for the sin of his people, but he also identifies with God. And the power of God flows through him. Moses, he cared about his people so much so that in Exodus 32, God's about to kill the people of Israel. And and, and Moses says, Hey, God, block them out of, out of, I mean, blot me out of your book, but save them. That this man Moses, he's this mediator that is so in love with these people that he say, Hey, give me damnation and save them. But what we see in the scriptures is that there's a better mediator. That Moses did this for these people, but there was a better mediator that came named Christ. That he's the greater Moses, and he's leading what's called the new exodus. That Jesus, he identifies with mankind and with God. He's fully man and fully God. That Paul would write, there is one God and one mediator, the man Jesus Christ that Jesus is having this conversation with, with uh, Moses and Elijah on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke 9. It's this crazy scene where Jesus kind of had this out-of-body experience with when what was on the inside of Jesus was now shown on the outside of Jesus. And so he had his boys, Peter, James, and John. He's like, hey, check this out. I'm about to blow your mind. So they go up to the top of this mountain. He jumps out of his skin, and he is in his glorified state. And he's like, Moses, man, what, what's up, man? How's it going in heaven? And Moses is like, man, you know, we've just been chopping it up, me and Jacob and Joseph and Abraham, you never believe what Abraham did the other day. He started talking about, you know, when he didn't have no kids, <laughs> it's crazy, like 95, and he, he was old. And then he told us about some stuff that ain't in the Bible, it's kind of weird. But, you know, when you get back, you know. Anyway, he's talking about, he's talking to Elijah, he's like, Elijah, man, remember that chariot, he rode chariots of fire? They, they're going to make a movie out of that, Elijah. It'd be cool. Anyway, nothing to do with you, but you know what I'm saying? And so they're talking, and then Moses, he looks at Jesus, and here's what he says. It says that in Luke 9 31, they were glorious to see, and they were speaking about. Check this out. They were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. And so Moses is talking with Jesus. He's like, bro, you're about to do your exodus. Remember what what I did? Yeah, you were there. Like, you're about to do yours. And he uses this same word. He says, you're about to complete your exodus in Jerusalem. And so what happens from there is that Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He sets his face like flint to the cross. And when Moses prayed, God, blot me out of your book, but save them, Jesus was the fulfillment of that. God said yes to Jesus, and Jesus was blotted out by God, that He became our salvation by experiencing the ultimate decreation, that Jesus on the cross, He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that upon the cross, Jesus is experiencing all the plagues, that that came to Egypt, all those 10 or 11 plagues, they fall upon Jesus on the cross. The wrath of God, the wrath of the Red Sea falls upon Christ on the cross. Listen, on the cross we see Jesus, our greater Moses, our mediator, who's starting the new exodus, we see Jesus being completely decreated so that you and I can have the chance to be completely recreated. On the cross, Jesus is being completely punished so that we could be delivered completely from our prison. Peter would say that Jesus would go and preach to the prisoners that I am victorious and that I conquered. And that he would raise from the grave, proving that he is who he said he was being worthy of the things that were written about him, being worthy of the title that he is a new Moses, leading a new exodus and calling us into this movement. I wonder, have you experienced redemption? Redemption is a Bible word that means to be loosened. Have you been liberated by the love of Jesus from the prison of your sin. Have you seen the salvation of the Lord on your behalf? And my dad, he he struggled with alcohol his whole life. And because of that, man, it cut his life short. The year he died, I remember he was going into the hospital for a, a pretty regular procedure, but he was gonna be going under. And so I called him. I'm like, Dad, you know, you know, how you doing? He said, well, Chad, to be honest with you, I'm nervous. I said, well, why are you nervous? He said, I, I just don't know if I'm going to make it. That he was afraid to die. See, when you, when you begin to come to the end of your life, you begin to look back on your life and get perspective. Sometimes when you consider your death, it gives you perspective on your life. And he begins to get worried. I said, Dad, why, why are you worried? He starts crying and says, I, I, don't, I don't know. I said, Dad, do you, are you sure that you know Christ? Because if you know Christ, you ain't got to be worried. And he said, oh, son, there's no denying that. And he began to tell me about this experience that he had where the gospel was shared to him through the mouthpiece of one of my brothers. And, and he said that in that night, it was like something fell upon me, like I, and I, I couldn't breathe, and God rushed in, and, I, and there was no denying that he saved me. I said, Dad, I remember I was, I was 13 when you got baptized on that Sunday night. If you went under the waters, you came up, and you raised your hands, and who would have ever thought you would be redeemed by Christ? And though he was set free from the authority of his Pharaoh, he still submitted to his Pharaoh. But he knew Christ and he knew his salvation. And again, I reminded the people on that day when I buried him that my father danced with demons his whole life. But the glimmer of hope that we hang on to today is that his salvation was not contingent upon the strength of his faith, but the strength of his Savior. Do you know that strength tonight? Have you trusted Christ as your only hope for salvation? Have you seen God move mightily on your behalf? Have you understood the depth and the darkness and the bondage in which Christ has come to liberate you from? Has your heart been melted and moved by the price that God paid so that he could liberate you? Have you been emancipated? Have you been liberated? Do you know life and do you know it abundantly? Are you dancing through God's deliverance from your demons and from your darkness? Or are you fearful of what may happen when you die? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for tonight. God, I thank you for my friends, and I thank you for this opportunity to get into your word. God, thank you that your word is life. God, I thank you so much that you have invited us into this new exodus with a greater Moses, that we have a mediator, God. And we thank you so much that this mediator, he loves us so much that he gave himself for us. And God, I pray for the man or the woman that's come here tonight that doesn't know you. God, that their faith, even though it may be small, that they would trust you with it and they would trust not in the significance of their faith but in the object of of their faith. They would trust in you that your salvation is significant and sufficient for them. God, I pray for all of us that are being seduced back into our slavery. God, I pray that we would say no to our Pharaohs, that we wouldn't be locked in this Stockholm syndrome where we have this weird connection with our tormentor God, we would be set free. God, you'd give us the strength to battle and to live like your people for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray.